Christmas is a time to gather your crankiest family members around the table to argue over their wildest and most poorly justified opinions. And in that spirit, I've gathered the extended Navara media clan, Moya Lothian McLean, James Butler, and Bastani and Michael Walker, to talk about some of the things they just couldn't get out of their minds in 2022. But before we embark on some wild flights of speculation, I just want to say a really big thank you to all of our supporters. This year, for the first time, we have topped 10,000 paying monthly supporters to Navarra Media. And as you know, we can do any of what we do without your very kind and very generous donations. So thank you so much. And if you haven't become a supporter, please consider it for 2023. Who knows, maybe it could also be a Christmas present to someone else. Anyway, without further ado, here is 90 minutes of Searing Heart Takes. So welcome everyone into our roundup of 2022's preoccupations, obsessions, bees in bonnets. Um, I will be your chair, your god, your king for the next hour or so. Um, And I was wondering, Moya, do you want to take it away? What is the thing you've not been able to stop thinking about this year? The thing I've not been able to stop thinking about this year is just how bad... (laughs) popular discourse is, how stale it is, how predictable the path it follows, how it's based upon extremes and extrapolation. And this always leads me back to social media because that's one of the major sites in which discourse is started and located. And it's also overly populated by the people who can direct discourse outside of those spaces, such as journalists like us, sadly, uh, politicians, celebrities who take conversations from the likes of Twitter and then disseminate them via more traditional channels. Is there something that you've got in mind when you're thinking about the predictability of discourse? Was there a story? That- I think I'm thinking about the the way that a story will start or something will be written, etc. And it might be something that's trying to bring nuance to a conversation, it might not be, but it will always end to the same thing and it will end into the same like beats of is this racist? Is this sexist? Is this this X or Y? And we'll always go to the most extreme version. And it usually ends up with someone saying, this is abuse. Mm. Um, so, and, and then you'll have, it turns into a completely different conversation, one that we've had over and over again. You'll also see this with politicians, for example, someone will be trying to bring a new point of view, et cetera, to them. And they'll be like, I've been abused on Twitter. And they'll turn that into something that eventually becomes, I don't know, a facet of the online safety bill. <laughs> and this is really impacts the way that we navigate the world and it shouldn't places like twitter i think this year we've seen how much of an outsized influence this site has it shouldn't have the sort of uh the influence it does it's only got like 290 million followers but because the people who are on twitter and the way that they engage with the discourse there that is then exported to the rest of the world and people outside and i think it really lends itself to this idea of polarization that we have which might not be as accurate for the rest of the countries it is for the sort of tastemakers conversation creators but because they're engaging in this polarization then it becomes real for everyone else so i'm thinking about discourse and i'm thinking about how unsatisfying popular discourse is and why <laughs> I mean, look, James, I know this is something which you think about a lot. Does this chime with any of your thoughts? It does. I mean, you know, the first thing I'm thinking about here is, of course, like like most of these questions, it's a question of money and time, right? I mean, there's, there's a reason that Twitter has an immediate kind of impact on the media ecosphere, which is that people transcribe stories very, very quickly. Um, uh, and it takes a journalist almost no time and you can rely on someone who is at the very start of their career and, poor, and pay them very poorly to do it. Um, and so, you know, I think we've all been in situations where we've had issues that we want to cover more deeply and spend more time investigating and thinking about and thinking, you know, if I had two days rather than two hours to put together a story on this, it would be very different. 
Um, but I do think it's kind of, you know, a wider cultural problem as well, which is that, you know, we are undergoing an experience of kind of great acceleration all the time in terms of uh, kind of speed of response, um, amount of information that needs to be responded to. And so inevitably people rely on kind of preformed heuristics in, in order to do that. Um, one of the things that's very striking about the way that Moyer is describe, you know, describing this kind of cycle is that it's, it's all about the person, right? It's all about the person doing it and where they come from, what their disposition is, who they are, um, and whether they're entitled to make the arguments that they're making. Uh, and indeed, whether those arguments are legitimate purely by the standpoint that they come from. Um, I think the really interesting other side of this is what I've been calling like the Kanye or Father Dougal problem, which is, <laughs> um, which is, it's a very rare pop culture reference from you. You talk about Father like, Ted? Yeah. Um, which <laughs> is that like, Kanye okay, Father Dougal. so, so Kanye, 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 you know, brings anti-Semitism um, you know, front and center in the American political conversation very, very quickly. And one of the things that's really disturbing about it is like how many people seem to be on board with it like that. Um, at the same time, like the question is, this thing has been made very, very visible by someone who's very, very badly mentally ill. Um, and there have been people who have been ready to rally to his side and they've had an outsized impact online. So that's very close and appears therefore very big. But actually, it could be that it's, uh, you know, that, that, that it's actually rather smaller than that. And, and so we don't really have the tools to, to assess um, the, how significant these contretemps online are. I was, I was thinking this recently about when people talk about experiences of racism or sexism or homophobia or whatever it is online where they'll go I just encountered this thing and you know very often it's a you know cut and dry incredibly like egregious violent horrible um encounter and it's one of those things where I go I think this is really important and I really understand the value in going this thing has happened to me and it's just happened to me and I need some kind of validation of my experience but then it has that like Father Dougal problem where people go like, and this is why Britain is unsafe. Like I saw um, tweets immediately following the World Cup final going, you know, black people in France, get off the streets and lock yourself up. It's not safe for you. And I was like, I just don't think that's true. And that's not to say that racism isn't real. It's not to say that black football players, when they miss penalties, aren't um lightning rods for all sorts of horrendous uh targeted harassment but i just don't think this thing is true and i don't know where we get from um making people feel in this constant state of like high alert all the time this is the thing that i've noticed about sort of popular discourse it's all about extremes and i think it's because there's a desensitization desensitization when you see things online constantly everything has to be the worst possible version for it to matter it's like serial killers it has to be it's not just like oh you you've yeah. killed six women it's like oh did you wear their skin yeah yeah it has to be the worst possible version or the worst possible outcome that people are talking about and again i think that lends itself to when we're discussing things that's only worthy of notice and to discuss something in public, it has to be worthy of notice. You want people to listen, you want people to pay attention. It's only worthy of notice if it's the worst possible outcome. So people can't just say, this is a bad thing. This is, you know, this is a gray area. They have to be like, this is the worst possible. This is full abuse. This is so violent. This is that. And that then further raises that ability to chat around the gray area and have a discourse that isn't just based on these two polarizations. It's either all or nothing. 
So then, in 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 your view, how do we navigate it? If we're, if we're, if we're, if we're not going to log off, which I note that none of us are. Mm. <laughs> I did a month away recently, but and then you came back. Of course, yeah. No, I mean just you know just one hit. <laughs> I mean I don't know. I, I I look at Michael, and I don't think that you've got an unhealthy relationship to Twitter. I think that like you're someone who is often um, pissing people off, but I don't necessarily think you've got like a compulsive relationship to Twitter. Yeah, well, I don't, I, I tweet many just questions now. And I suppose that's my wonder with the whole discourse thing. You're like, are women Obviously, human? I think I sort of buy into all of your critiques of it. I wonder if it's somewhat self-limiting in the sense that, yes, everyone on social media takes things to the extreme. Everything becomes violent. Everything becomes way more polarized than it needs to be because of the sort of unhealthy dynamics of it. But I feel like in a way that means that all but a small minority of people are going to switch off. I feel like for me, that sort of, whole of Twitter discourse was very much something I went into for like a year and I was like I'm done with this <laughs> and I think that actually that's quite a common experience which is why I you know there's lots of, I'm not saying this is what you're saying but there's lots of analyses which is sort of like this is taking over the world this is the future and that's where all of this sort of fear-mongering about wokeness comes from because they look at these disastrous ends of the internet and think this is the future and I think actually maybe that's everyone's quite young who's doing it you get bored after a year maybe this is quite Epiphenomenal and peripheral. I, I would agree with you in some senses in that I think a lot of people do get bored with it. And that's important. What I think we're seeing though is that the people who are, as I said, the conversation creators outside of Twitter, et cetera, are not bored with it. They're using that as a constant source of like content and discussion. And it's where do we go there? And it's also the problem is with this, you know, logging off, which is great. And like a lot of people I know in my immediate circle have done it. It is about the individual. So how do we create better conversations offline or elsewhere? Because that is going to affect how we navigate politics. That is going to affect how we see the world. And also, you know, when you go online, it's just a, it's a cycle of reaction, offense, extrapolation. You can remove yourself from that, but then where are you going to have, you know, these nourishing, better, broader conversations when you know that as you say, if the young generation's on there, they're just being totally socialized into, I mean, into that Aaron, way of talking. Aaron, I noticed that our commander in beef has been <laughs> <laughs> remarkably quiet on the subject of Twitter. Well, yeah, I think accompanying all of this is is the is the death of a literary culture. Mm. And, you know, I think James and I are probably old enough to remember that you used to be able to get a route master around London before iPhones and smartphones and everything. Pick up the Baker light phone like this. <laughs> This was only 20 years ago and everybody would be reading. Mm. And it wasn't the evening stand because it was free. It was books, it was magazines, it was newspapers. And it was a distinctly British thing, actually, because you could go you could go to Italy or you could go to France. It, it wasn't the same thing. It was a really, I think, really charming feature of, of London urbane existence. And it's dead. Now people, I think, spend their time consuming content, which is qualitatively inferior and is more corrosive to society. I'm not, I'm not one of these people who goes, oh, you know, it has some upsides, some downsides. I think in many ways the internet's very valuable. But how we're consuming content when we do things like commute today is absolutely worse than it was when I was a younger person. And so I think the, the point I would add to um, what's been said here by Moya very eloquently is that what is the alternative you're saying about meaningful conversations? Right now, we can't have meaningful conversations within a market mechanism, right? Mm. That evaporated with the internet and with the falling cost of information because of digital technologies 20 years ago. And we're living in the ruins of that. And that gives you the Andrew Tates. That gives you people, because they've been ghosted by somebody, start making TikToks about how it's abuse, right? Because we actually can't have healthy, coherent, prolonged, informative conversations in the kind of spaces which, by the way, are 
ancestors did for, for centuries, right? In a meaningful way in terms of print culture, really, at, at least, let's say, for the last 150, 200 years with mass literacy. And I think that's a bad thing. And I think it's really sad. But you know what I actually think that the internet does to all of us, and it's also had an impact on politics, is that it turns us all into like really bad literary critics. Because I was thinking about the kind of essays that I wrote in my like undergrad, and I was studying English literature, and I would do that thing where you'd l like lay so much meaning onto one thing. And I remember, like I look back on it and I absolutely cringe. I was uh, writing an essay about the taming of the shrew. And uh, Patricio like renames Catherine Kate and he keeps calling her Kate, 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 and it really winds her up. And I remember writing an essay where I was trying to, you know, grapple with like, well, is this a form of abuse or what? And I was like, and it's just like the way slaves were renamed. And now I look back on it and I go, of course it wasn't just like how slaves were renamed. I was just like hanging too much baggage on it. But it's this thing that I think social media encourages us to do where you read everything like a text. So real human events and real human experiences are read like a text. And then what your job is, is to kind of extract the most um, weighty, um, far-reaching kind of conclusion from it, regardless of whether or not the event deserves it. And I always think about the Will Smith slap, because you had these two sides where one, you had Dehenna Davidson, who uh, is the MP for Bishop Auckland, and she was like, my father was killed by one punch, and this this could be the exact same thing. And I was like, that's very, very sad. I'm very sorry for your loss. But that is qualitatively different from an open-hand slap. And then you have Jamila Jamil, who was like, uh, barely touched him, uh, not even violent. And anyway, here's a photo of Malcolm X, the most disrespected, uh, you know, person in America is the black woman. The most unprotected person in America is the black woman. I was like, sure, but is that the most unprotected person in America, Jada Pinkett Smith? <laughs> um, I'm not sure. And I was just like, have we all taken leave of our senses? But it's this extrapolation, like I said, you react, you extrapolate, you get a, and that extrapolation often includes offence. You have to feel personally aggrieved and offended to respond to something like a text. And that's what goes viral nowadays. And that creates worse discourse. Do you not all think that potentially lots of people are engaging with this in a self-conscious recognition that this is part of the entertainment industry? So I, I'm not sure that everyone is taking this as seriously as we worry they are. And, and even when, you know, the, the mechanisms by which these Twitter debates come to feature in mainstream culture, say Piers Morgan or whoever, mm. you know, some people will be watching that getting genuinely angry. But I think a lot of people are watching that thinking this is a form of entertainment, which I can dip into and out of. I and think then I think, it seems a bit more anodyne. I think you've extrapolated from what I said and said it's everyone, which is not what I said. What I said is the problem is it's the conversation starters who, who dominate the media, like us who are sitting here talking about it or writing, you know, about the trans debate in The Guardian. Those kind of things that happen on Twitter, et cetera, become these really toxic debates that have gone all the way up into politics and parliament and affect real people on the ground. And everyday lives. You've got J.K. Rowling starting a uh, women-only refuge that's been accused of both transphobia, racism, etc. Because of something that initially started on Twitter and a discourse that has taken her down the path of radicalization. And I don't think we can ignore how much those things that happen in these sites do affect these real people and politicians. Last word for Aaron and then we'll move on. I, I would say what Moya is saying actually is it, I agree with her. And I, well, I also agree with what you're saying, which is a, an ever-growing contingent, particularly in this country, as an outgrowth of what I said with regards to the economy's information, are switching off from legacy media. Or at the very least, they just don't take it particularly seriously, or it's just a form of entertainment, which of course it has been for decades, but I think we're getting to some kind of end point with that. What Moyer's saying is that the tastemakers and, and, and the columnists and, and sort of the people that set the news agenda 
aren't those people. And what happens is they're cascading, really, a, a tidal wave of triviality actually through far more powerful channels like broadcast TV, newspapers, etc. And I think that's really dangerous. I do think that's dangerous because you have this weird moment where the majority of the population is like, the media just talks about the weirdest stuff, <laughs> right? Like, my high street looks like crap. My business, I, I can barely make ends meet. I've just been laid off, or my my husband's a firefighter, my wife's a nurse, whatever. Life's getting worse. And these people are talking about the most puerile, trivial stuff all the time. What the hell is going on? And I do think it's a danger to democratic societies when media, A, is so trivial, but also B, perhaps more importantly, the public in general just think it's worthless. That's, that's what I think is really, really worrying. They think it's worthless. And in many instances, they're not wrong. Right. We're going to move on from this. James, what have you been thinking about? Yeah, what has yeah, been yeah, yeah. holding your well, brain you know, hostage? I mean, maybe in some ways it's, it's connected, and 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 of course, you know, to, just to, to build an Aaron's point into into mine is is that it's not it's of course not about just about kind of content but form as well, and that's you know the major thing that I think um, I think we're talking about when we're talking about social media. Um, but to me, so the the big thing I've been kind of obsessed with over twenty twenty two. But there have been many things, but this is one of them. Um, is yeah, is, not like the tortilla press that you just got. <laughs> <laughs> if only, if only. Um, no, is 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 something I'm recalling the return of the normative, and you know, to me, this seems like the big sea change in politics over the last few years. And what I mean by it is that partisans, um, especially on the right of politics, which is where it's most noticeable at the moment, um, are really willing to make these kind of arguments in very, very strong normative terms about things like the role of women, um, so-called Judeo-Christian morality, um, but as well like things like, oh, the way that modernity um, really injures people's psyches, um, you know, even things like built space and how things should look and the moral content of architecture or art. Are you talking about the like Western traditionalist Twitter Yeah, 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 that's, that's part of it. Um, so these are, these, are, these are kind of strong, really, really strong moral claims about um, what a political community is and what it should be and how it should be constituted. And so these kind of claims are never absent from politics, right? I mean, they're always there. They're always underlying the way in which we think about, um, you know, politics in very kind of fundamental terms. But I think you can say there's an identifiable period, which like, you know, the, the cliche would be to say it runs from 89 to 2008. I think you can actually push it a bit on, on either side, um, in, in which... You know, those assumed shared values of Western capitalism are so strong and they're so kind of tacit that conflict about norms was actually really, really low. Um, and so the arguments were all about the, you know, how much should we do a thing? You know, what kind of percentage of things should we redistribute? Um, you know, how do we implement this? Um, you know, whether do, do we, you know, what's the, the balance between private and public, etc. Um, the shift, I think, is not only... Um, in much more kind of fundamental terms about like what kind of society do we want to be. Um, but it also encompasses people like Jordan Peterson. Um, you know, so the role of the guru is very, very important here, I think. Um, offering kind of meaningful answers um, to, to, to problems that people are experiencing or kind of pseudo meaningful answers. Um, the question of psychoanalysis is lurking here somewhere, right? And it's something that I don't think we talk about enough. Um, the left has stopped talking about it. There's a wide swathe of social issues in the UK. And I think, you know, for me, it especially includes, right? I was looking at some polling the other day, um, sorry, the, the NHS survey, 
um, revealing that like, you know, and this is the first year it's been done in a couple of years, this kind of incredible number of young people who are abstaining entirely from sort of alcohol and drugs and sex, um, you know, and, and that speaks to, 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 to conflict or, or kind of questions along these lines. Um, you know, and I would call it, you know, there's a side of that that's neo-puritanical, and I think you've got to think about why that exists. Um, but yeah, so this kind of really fundamental conflict about norms. And, you know, the reason I bring it up is that it's it's a double-edged sword for the left, right? The left can make really strong moral um, foundational claims about what kind of society they want to live in um, and, and what kind of society we want to, to function. But unless we find a way to navigate it, and kind of think explicitly about how those claims are made and, you know, what the dangers in making them are, we're going to find ourselves left stranded talking about 1%, 2%, 3% when, you know, people are out there talking about the fundamental role of, you know, this kind of people, the way our society needs to be ordered. Who wants to come in on that first? I was wondering, James thinks that this is due to, I, I guess, the retreat of traditional community etc. It's, it's, it seems very tied in with nostalgia and the need as I guess social structures are disappearing, the sort of the state isn't there to catch you, the government say you're on your mm. own, you don't have the same institutions for young people in particular, renting, chaotic, dating, mm. chaotic, job, chaotic, it's a constant precarious existence. And then you've got someone saying, well, this is a very strict way of ordering society that you can cling to. And it seems like a safety. Yeah, there can be a return to order. There can right. be a return to mm -hmm. order in the mid. And I've, I've read, listened to a podcast recently about um, Munster when they thought the world was ending. Mm. And like, was it the 16th century? I might be making that up. It was slightly earlier. Slightly earlier. There you go. Thought the world was ending. And it was saying. Well, I first thought you meant the Munsters, which was like a kind of like pre Adam's <laughs> family TV no, show. No, not there. The no, Munsters in German Munster. And they were talking about it, they thought the world was ending because it was such a time of great change and period. And it, those periods, you always think the world is ending. And you would cling on to something very tightly that seems like it will give you that order. Mm. And I was wondering if James thinks that this is perhaps a response to that. Yeah, absolutely. And just on Munster, I would say there is, of course, an amazing novel by um, the, author, the Italian author collective Wu Ming, um, but back when they were writing as Luther Blissett, um, called Q, which is a kind of amazing um, European sort of spy slash proto-communist slash Anabaptist mystery, really compelling, brilliant Christmas read. Um, <laughs> Just a quick plug. Uh, I, I love them. I think they're brilliant. Um, and you can get it from uh, all quality booksellers. <laughs> what I would say is I think that's true. Um, and I think so I think lots of this arises from this encounter with like liquid modernity mm. in which like everything is kind of, you know, come under the rule of value, um, is infinitely mutable. Um, but the other thing is like it's 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 also a fairly recent phenomenon. And part of it is also to do with the narrowing of kind of technical expertise within politics as well. Um, and obviously, while things are going well, that's fine. Like people are quite happy to leave technical experts to kind of do their technical expertise when things are mostly functioning. Um, when they're not, these kind of questions arise. And so I started thinking about this when I went back and read the beverage report. Mm. Um, and you know, For there's lots of maybe some of our listeners who have uh, heard beverage of the beverage report, report is 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 um, basically the founding document of the welfare state. It's basically a, a document of kind of post-war reconstruction. Beveridge is a liberal. He's basically asked to 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 write a report on social insurance. Um, it blossoms into this kind of huge, um, you know, vision for a kind of uh, a systemic welfare state. And the thing that's interesting about it is that it includes lots of kind of technical propositions. It includes these really strong normative claims and arguments about what kind of society you want to live in. You know, the famous line is, you know, a time of revolution is a time for revolutions, not for patching. 
So who who else wants to come in here? Because I know I've got some thoughts, but I don't want to abuse my position as chair. I mean, I guess for me, a big part of this is um, the question of loneliness and how bad we are at dealing with loneliness. I think one of the reasons why these kind of, you know, um, you know, Jordan Peterson figures or, you know, even like uh, Christopher Rufo, these kind of like, you know, kind of hardcore headbanging Christian traditionalists is because there's a lot of lonely people. And I think that there is a tendency amongst a left which has become really concerned with, with a particular kind of identity politics, which I want to talk about in a bit. Um, it, it says, well, this is your fault. This is your fault. You just can't deal with your experience of a loss of status and you just need to like get on with it. And I think that part of the neo-Puritanism is, is you describe it in terms of, you know, Zoomers who are really anti-porn or aren't having sex and don't want to drink. Part of it is like, well, hang on. Like all you've given me is like... Um, porn hub and hedonism and I feel lonely and I feel quite shit but if I say these things I'm presented as anti-sex work or anti-sex or sad or maladapted and I think that there's there's a way in which the left has become really antagonistic towards the idea of a shared moral community in which we all live we've said well what you have to do is stay in your lane and listen to other people and you can't really talk about your experience of your encounters with some of these things and I think it makes people feel really really lonely and of course I'm not then saying well you know let's revive the junior anti-sex league as much as I would love to <laughs> right like you know everyone gets those kicky little sashes um the thing I'm talking about is actually leaving room for talking about the encounter so yes of course talk about um, sex work and sex work decriminalization in a way which centers the experience of sex workers. But I think that we should also be able to say, well, hang on, I think the universal availability of this particular kind of pornography, which is like really like a pneumatic um, or like a kind of eroticism which is all based around uh, visual stimuli and there are of course all kinds of eroticism that you can participate in I think it's doing something to us which is bad and and that's not because I'm demonizing the people who are participating in that kind of work but um, you know I make up part of that audience I make, make up part of that you know audience where even if I'm not watching it the people I'm sleeping with are and it, it has an impact um, so yeah I think there's something there for me which is about the retreat from moral community and indeed an attack on the idea of moral community which is also weird because the left is very very moralizing at the mm. same time mm. like sometimes like psychotically moralizing yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah i was watching tiktok the other day and um, one of these sort of gurus you know tristan tate who's like andrew tate's better looking brother which makes him i think quite concerning really <laughs> um uh he's walking around luton and he's pointing out social decay and he's saying 15 years ago that was this this was that look at it now he goes, my mother was in there. Somebody was assaulted. A police officer was killed there. I'm saying, everything he's saying is true. Not, nothing he's saying is inaccurate. But what he does is he folds that critique of the built environment, urban decay, a failure of capitalism into, and the solution is, and I, I think that's State right. distribution of girlfriends. What are we? Yeah, very normative things, right? It's fuck bitches getting money. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I love the way you muttered that. Like, I don't really know if really you have to say it. Can I say it? Yeah, you can say that. Fuck bitches get money is the Tate philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's going to be taken out of context. But even, even, you know, even somebody who wasn't, you know, one of those guys, you know, more religious person, for instance, would say, and this is why we need, you know, religious renewal and et cetera, et cetera. So that's the first one. And I watched that and I was, my, my jaw kind of dropped because I thought with the left, we're not at the races. You know, we're not folding that broader critique, which I think everybody, mm. you know, the left has won that debate in terms of the, neoliber the neoliberal center saying everything's fine. Yeah. The growth model works. Living standards are fine. Nobody thinks that anymore. And I think the next phase is that the right folds all of that into this normative critique 
and we we can't do that because of the kind of ideological toolkit we have. Second point, you know, Max Weber talks about the the enchantment of politics, and that this dies really with the birth of sort of bureaucratic mm. politics of the twentieth century. Um, and and I think what we're seeing with this kind of stuff is a re-enchantment of politics. Mm. And and as somebody on the left say after two thousand and eight, I always thought the re-enchantment of politics would be a good thing. Mm. You know, it means oh we're we're you know we're we're removing the dead hand of you know technocratic neoliberalism. But the re-enchantment of politics can also mean handmaid's tale. Mm. It can mean the- theocratic government. It can mean um, all manner of things. It can mean I think this will happen in our lifetimes personally the return of monarchies in some countries, which are presently republics. Mm. And we really thought for a certain period of time that debate was over, those countries wouldn't go back to monarchies, and I think they will. I actually think the forefront of this, by the way, is Iran. Mm. And, and you see it with you know mm. liberals cheerleading, democracy, freedom, I agree with all that, I agree with the regime needs to go, but then they hold a picture of you know Reza Shah mm. above, which yeah. is, I think, nonsensical to me. And I, th- I think that is the leading edge of something in the 21st century. That re-enchantment, mm-hmm. I, I think, goes hand in hand with this. And then finally, the geopolitical context. Because what we have alongside all of this is, is the rise of the rest versus the West. Mm-hmm. And so you have a critique of our own social economic models at home, but also at the same time, people can look at China, the Gulf, or actually, you know, if you want to look at positive models, right? It doesn't just go one way, but they can say they do things in a way which we don't, and I think it works. Mm. Paradigmatic example here is, you know, China. We talked about pornography. Mm. The Chinese government bans pornography. Can't, you can't access it. Or they 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 limit the number of, you know, the number of hours that young people can access TikTok or social media. And of course, in the West, because we haven't had that normative register for decades, we go, you can do that. You can, you can ban pornography. Now, I'm not suggesting we ban pornography, but I think you're right to highlight that there are massive externalities, particularly for young people, being a- able to access something that powerful so easily, mm. right? You know, I believe in post-scarcity, but actually maybe the friction of the price mechanism is quite useful for something like that. Um, and so I think that is also, you know, in the background to all of this, we've just come out of the World Cup. I don't think Gata should have had the World Cup. Um, on the other hand, I obviously think it's positive that an Arabic country, a Muslim country hosted it. But what you're beginning to hear is this was the safest World Cup ever. Very, mm. very few assaults, very few fights, no drinking. And my concern is the more the living standards stagnate in places like the UK, the more we feel we don't have a collective shared sense of social and political mm. ethical mission, the more those kinds of communities become quite attractive, actually. Mm. Right, Michael, you're a normie. Tell us about your people. My people, the normies. Well, I suppose my, uh, when I sort of read James's brief introduction to your point, I think my question was sort of going to be, does this really matter? Is this just a phenomenon that's happening online? A bit similar to what I was saying in the previous thing. But I've kind of been persuaded, actually. Um, I think that this probably does matter beyond the corners <laughs> of online and that the left should be providing people with some meaning. Um, at the same time, I think you can't get carried away, right? I, yeah. I do think that ultimately elections are probably going to be mainly decided by, you know, economics and stuff like that. And the sort of the noisiest parts of the internet aren't necessarily like the most significant when you're looking at a sociological scale. Mm-hmm. So how popular really is Jordan Peterson? It's, you know, it's very visible how sort of significant he is he in terms of politics and sort of mass experience. Maybe not, maybe no more important than like first dates, which is like quite a, a, a lovely representation <laughs> of society where people are kind of, you know, quite sympathetic towards each other and accepting of difference, et cetera, et cetera. I'm afraid so, I don't know what that is. <laughs> first dates. You've never oh, watched first really dates. 
Have you ever been on a first date? Of course I've been on a first it's date. Just checking. It's just a show where they go on first dates, James. Okay, right. We've just got mass culture is much more, you know, Jordan Peterson and that sort of online right-wing sure. moralistic stuff is kind of like maybe the cutting edge of mass mm -hmm. culture, but it's still not the main bit of mass culture. I, I think what we're seeing, which is quite interesting linked to that, is that you're already seeing the real world effects of this return. Because if even if, you know, the central government are going to remain in this, you know, elections based on economics, you're seeing small fiefdoms rise up. So in in America, you're already seeing like this, oh, should we go, should we go from a, de should we go decentralized? Should we break up the federation? Should you get sheriffs in small towns who are saying we're going to ignore federal um, laws. We're going to just rule things the way the people want to rule things here. I think you're also starting to see that in the UK as well. You've got these small movements, which should seem a bit silly at first, like the, you know, the Northern independence movement, but more and more there is a uh, a move towards, okay, well, if the government, et cetera, is not going to reflect the values and fix the social decay via moral decay and rectifying that, you'll see people say, well, okay, we're going to form our own separate community and it's going to be made up here. And the gurus are a huge part of that because eventually you'll get everyone shipping out to a certain yeah. space, et cetera, a commune. I mean, what I would say is don't get hung up on Peterson here. I mean, Peterson's yeah. an interesting example, but it's a very kind of minor um, one, I think, in the grand scheme of things. Um, what I would say is like it's quite important not to draw a clear bright line between issues of kind of culture and economics mm. like you know i used to do this quite a lot and think that they were they were more easily separable than in in my experience i think they tend to be these issues you know partly of course these questions are basically economic issues the question about the role of women is actually also a question about the family wage it's a question about security it's a question you know so you can see the way in which these things are connected um the other thing I would say, and I think the thing that, that that's kind of hovering around this conversation, is like certainly when I was a teenager and probably even into my early twenties, I kind of basically thought social commitment to democracy probably going to be fine. Um, you know, I was I started to worry about it a bit when I started to take climate change seriously. Mm. Um, I was like, hmm, I don't know, I don't know so much about this. Um, I think it's, I think it's much, I think it's declining precipitously in fairly, in fairly worrying ways. I mean, that not but only there are ways in which I feel it myself. I'm like, I really get wound up when, you know, it's like local community says no to wind farms. I'm like, fuck it. I want to build it on your cottage. <laughs> Don't care. I agree. And I think, and this is the problem. And again, one of these tensions, and it's interesting you brought up the States because this tension in the States is a constitutive feature of American politics, that tension between central power and kind of local sovereignty. But that's a tension that runs through loads of democracies anyway, including our own. Um, and it's a question that operates on a global scale when it comes to climate change. I mean, just like a couple of things there, you know, a, a case for optimism, norm conflict is actually good. Norm conflict is what allows, you and I remember the period before, and in fact, most people around this table remember the period before you could do politics in Britain, back when there was a kind of stultifying consensus. When I went to university, the main issue um, when I was going up for interview was ID cards. Like, that seemed, and that was like, and, and, and I still think that's a big civil liberties issue. Absolutely. But the idea that that was the, the one thing that was at the center of politics at the moment, it seems almost unimaginable now. And so norm conflict is actually good for the left. If the left can make a clear case about and, and, and is relevant to the conversation. I, I mean, you know, one of the things that's, you know, on my mind here is that like, it used to be the case that parts of the left really had this, um, you know, the classic book here is Raf Samuel's book, The Lost World of British Communism. Mm. You have people like absolutely um, 
with like this different world in their heads. I'm not saying we need to bring that back. What I'm saying is that like, it's actually thinking on that scale that's going to be important here. Yeah, the thing about Jordan Peterson being overstated, I, I actually really disagree with you, Michael. You know, um, Cristiano Ronaldo has 520 million Instagram followers and he's like, yeah, this guy's great. I think actually the exposure of these ideas, if we're going to refer to something as mainstream, I think actually Jordan Peterson as an author is about as successful now as a public intellectual gets. And it's not just YouTube. And it goes back to Moyer's point about how actually a lot of stuff that is online then cascades through legacy media. And I think Jordan Peterson is a classic example of that. Another one again is Andrew Tate. Um, you know, he there was one point, you know, where he was having all of these um, platforms removed from him. He was the most searched person on the planet on Google. And I get well, everybody uses Google, right? And I, and I think I think that really can't be overstated. He was more searched than somebody like Donald Trump. And so I, you know, when you go through those YouTube shorts and you see somebody from the manosphere saying something crazy and he gets two million thumbs up. I do think that's there's more to that than just oh this is just YouTube. You know, for a majority of Gen um, Gen Z now, TikTok is search, not Google. Mm -hmm. And and on so TikTok, weird. this stuff is is the default. It is the default. You know, Navarro has a hundred thousand TikTok followers almost, but it's not. And by the way, as well, TikTok as a social media platform, it's it's again, its default is individuals, personalization. Mm. Actually, what's interesting is the biggest brands on TikTok aren't corporations or mm. organizations, it's, it's individuals. And and so I, I actually don't think it's as marginal, as peripheral as you think. All right, you get the last word. No, I'm fairly persuaded. I, <laughs> I, I feel like maybe I should worry more about Jordan Peterson. That's than a I good do. last word, I think. Yeah. You've been persuaded you by You wanted us. to say something. Though. No, I wasn't going to say something. I was just going to talk about the way TikTok's set up and how it's, it's all, it's not even personalities. It's, it's totally based on content. So once you get served one piece of content, you don't even go back to the same person. It's just that again and again and again. And it gives you this overwhelming message that this is all that you need to think about or care about and you can't it's very hard to get out of that feedback loop as well once you're in it like changing your algorithm on tiktok is hugely difficult so if you get one jordan peterson suddenly that's the world view and now it's my turn to share with you what i have been thinking about a lot in 2022 so the thing i've been thinking a lot about is the anti-solidaristic turn in identity politics. And I think it's something which has kind of dawned on me. And then there was a kind of explosion of uh, political phenomena, which made me go, oh my God, this thing is really fucked. So what I mean by the anti-solidaristic turn in identity politics is that one, there is a logic of irreducible difference. So my experience as a Muslim or a South Asian is totally different from you know, someone else's as a trans woman or a black person or a disabled person or a gay person. And that irreducible difference means that there can be no real empathy. I couldn't possibly imagine myself into your shoes. I couldn't possibly form a kind of shared movement based on shared interests with you. Then you've got uh, something which is related, which I think is about competing interests. So if our experiences are so different that we can't possibly form a movement together well our interests are competing and where it's competing is in visibility and I think that David Baddiel's Jews Don't Count is the perfect example of this um, a theme of the book essentially is that any visibility for any other form of racism dislodges anti-Semitism from its proper status. And this isn't just something he writes about in the book. It's also something which he's talked about on social media. So if you talk about the Bengal famine, he views that as a soft form of Holocaust denial because it's undermining the singular horror of the Holocaust by talking about something else that Winston Churchill did. Now, I think that is an insane position to take um, because I think that 
talking about Winston Churchill's actions in Bengal, no, no more undermine his role in World War II than Stalin being the first to reach Berlin undermines, you know, what he did during the purges. But it's this sense of a visibility competition and all of us are sort of scrambling like crabs in a barrel to be seen, to be recognized, to have our suffering validated. And I think another part of this is also lived experience rather than being one form of knowledge. And I think it is a valuable form of knowledge. I think about it as like witness testimony. It's like I have this experience or this subjectivity and it sheds a particular kind of light on an issue it's turned into an unassailable authority so well my lived experience is this well other people might have a different lived experience there's you know over six billion lived experiences on this planet there's going to be a lot of them how how do you decide you know what what the truth is you know, if your lived experience is that it's raining and mine is that it isn't, who's going to stick their wind, their head out the window to check? Um, and I think that it's something which we encounter in so many different ways. There's this idea of you have to stay in your lane. No one can talk about um, experiences out, outside of their own, uh, you know, subjective little world. I think there's also this um, uh, fear of solidarity, that what solidarity is, is a kind of uh, a Trojan horse for, for um, I guess, domination amongst minority groups. And it's something that is really scaring the shit out of me, quite frankly, because I think that, um, you know, identity politics and how it was initially formulated by the Combahee River Collective, I don't think it was an idea free of flaws, but it at least started out as something which was a vantage point. It's saying this is our vantage point as black women. We're at the bottom of the labor market. Um, it gives us a view of capitalism, of imperialism, these things which aren't just about um, sexism or racism. Uh, they also wrote in their statement that we believe that black feminism is the logical political movement for all women of color. Right? This isn't just for us. And we've somehow gotten from that to this thing, which I think is just profoundly individualistic and suspicious of one another. I think there's something which is kind of anti-human about it. So I don't know if this has been bugging other people as much as it's been bugging me, but it's been genuinely keeping me awake at night. I'm going to have, can I ask you a question? Go for it. Because it kind of feeds into this, which is male feminism, right? So for instance, I don't personally don't like men that say I'm a feminist. I don't like it because it's a practice rather than like a label. Um, and there's obviously a lot of cultural sort of cachet and capital which is attached to it. But at the same time, I believe that feminism emancipates men to an extraordinary extent. Mm. It allows them to love their children uh, and to love themselves in ways that were previously like inadmissible. Mm. And so how, how do we... How do we do that? Because at the, on the one hand, I'm saying I don't like male feminists. On the other hand, I'm saying it's like a revolutionary set of ideas for, for, for emancipating men as well as well as women. Well, you know what? Like, it's actually your article that you wrote for The Guardian recently about your experience of reading Bell Hooks, The World's Change. My God, that was a real, like, you know, Oops. lob a grenade into Twitter. Like, <laughs> um, But actually, I think I think more is the person to talk here because I, I do think that feminism enables men to have a transformed experience of themselves and the people around them. I think that there's also it's not a coincidence that like you know it's with feminist movements that you have these really transformed relationships between fathers and their children um you know you have i think from generation to generation a much more hands-on and emotionally involved style of parenting which would be you know totally um you know crazy to you know a man born maybe like you know 70 or 80 years ago and i think that that is a one way in which we could go 
feminism has transformed men's experiences of of the world around them. But I'd be I'd be interested to hear what what you have to say. Oh, I actually have something different, slightly different to say, which is about the development of this reductionist identity politics, which I think probably does stem from online platforms. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's the internet. The Again. internet. But I've, I've, I've got a theory which I once tried to put forth on the internet very clumsily and was shouted down as uh, being anti-ADHD, which I actually have. So. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's about the taxonomies and categories that we use online. And I think using platforms with very strict algorithms, which are very like clear binaries, we tend to pigeonhole, pigeonhole ourselves. We need to categorize immediately, taxonomize. It's like, what are you? Well, I'm this, that, that, and that. And there's no blurring of those lines. There's no sort of like bleeding into other spaces. And when we're talking about this idea of, you know, male feminists, et cetera, when I think of feminism now, um, especially after reading uh, that Bell Hooks book, The World's Change, which does have its flaws, et cetera, but it's very interesting. I used to think of feminism as this movement, you know, primarily for like the liberation of women, but now I don't. I'm like, feminism is ideology, is a vehicle that liberates everyone. It can be with this politics of love. It is whatever you make it really, which sounds very woolly, but it's got much wider scope than before. And I think the problem with, again, going back to this idea, discourse online, which is a lot of where the left spend their spaces and like spend their time and a lot of where we've spent time categorizing and wielding power that we might not have in the outside world, then we've created these very strict categories of who gets to speak and when, mm. almost like this town forum. But the more we do that, the more we've siloed people off and said, and it's been turned, also captured by liberal identity politics, which is taking like the David Baddiel stuff and giving people a personal, well, this happened to me and this is specifically how it happened. I've got this lived experience and you can't talk over me. And if you do, it's actually a form of racism. I mean, I, I think that a big part of this, I think that like technology is a part of it. And I think that also neoliberalism is another big part of it. But I also think that like there are psychological explanations which are really important because I kind of find this attachment to victim status, mm. there's a neuroticism to it. Like I don't think it's making anyone any happier, but they can't fucking let it go. And I've experienced that myself sometimes when I've had my own sense of victimhood being challenged, whether that's in a relationship or whether that's politically, there is this bit of me which like wants to snarl and hiss like I'm a cat that's being forced into a bath. Like there is something in me which can't let it go. And I think that what this might have something to do with is narcissism. Like it is about fascination with the self as an object of stu study. It's about fascination with the self um, and, and the ability to sort of like plumb the limitless depths of your own interiority. And that's what I think lots of this stuff appeals to. It's about me. It's really about me. So you get to dress it up in a collective language. Like, you know, my lived experience as a woman of color speaks to every woman of color, except it, it also doesn't doesn't really and I think you see this with a lot of the kind of like publishing and commissioning around this stuff like I'm I'm always being asked to write like a first person essay of like what is it like as a woman of color doing this like you know you're almost being invited to do this one woman show called you know speaking as a <laughs> and I see it a lot it's just fascination with the self and you know we could all stand to remember what happened to Narcissus when he couldn't pull away from the reflective surface of the pool he fucking drowned I mean, the, the thing to say here, though, surely, is that, yeah, I think you're right to say there's a kind of psychoanalytic component to this, which is really important. There is, of course, a healthy narcissism. You know, as, as a psychoanalytic... said. <laughs> as a psychoanalytic term, you know, like, it, it, that narcissism is ineradicable, right? Like, that it's a feature of human psychological identity. It's a thing that happens. And the question is, like, you know, actually, I think one of the things we're talking about here 
um, is actually sort of a kind of weird sort of woundedness and wounded attachment in particular, which is, I mean, that to me, wounded attachment, big thing. Is that but, the Wendy Brown thing? So this is a Wendy Brown um, book called States of Injury, um, which is incredibly perceptive. I think early 2000s book, which to me, it, you know, it says a lot about the left even now um, in its kind of re you know relationship to to things um, that, that that disappoint them or that um, or, or to which they 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 can't quite let go. Um, we don't need to go into it in great detail here. Um, I would say it's worth reading. Um, there are two things though that I think matter here. One is your point about imagination. And imaginative kind of co-constitution, that, that moment when you, you, get, you kind of build from your own experience um, and, and therefore kind of build common ground with someone else. This is like an act of political communication uh, and it's fundamentally important. Uh, and it's something that's you know, often missing from neoliberal conversations about identity. Um, you know, neoliberal identity politics in particular has this sort of weird accounting mentality, right? Where you, you know, like you add up your kind of oppression points and you find, you know, where you sit in the scale and then you can be back, you can be rude to people below you, but like have to be, have to defer to people above you. You know, societies don't work like that. Human beings don't work like that. Social change really doesn't work like that. <laughs> um, so I think that's, you know, it's just worth pointing that out. Identity is not just about cumulative history either, right? So, so it's, it has this psychoanalytic dimension. One of the things I think that we see in this kind of weird, increasingly atomized form of identity politics that you're recognizing is this fact that there's something like kind of weirdly fissiparous about weirdly what fissiparous fissiparous it's a perfectly reasonable word Ash. it's a perfectly cromulent <laughs> word <laughs> um, it means prone to prone to split apart there we right? go um like fissile yeah 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 uh, yeah same roots Fission, yeah it's time um, to the english thesaurus here. <laughs> <laughs> um but but something fundamentally fissiparous about identity and about its relationship to selfhood um and it's not just that like there's no like social reward for it always but like no identity ever quite fits an individual right um not entirely and not definitively unless you're like a kind of bizarre caricature um you know i no id category is going to explain to you who you are um to yourself like more than anything and one of the things i think that we see in identity politics is people going oh yeah i recognize this category is me so why doesn't it tell me everything i need to know about myself mm -hmm. oh so i must be something else instead and so you get these kind of increasingly sort of fissile um categories which endlessly kind of refine and split and refine um that again has a huge psychoanalytic history to it um i'm sounding like someone who's who really wants the left to rediscover its kind of um, engagement with psychoanalysis I actually find a lot of that kind of really tendentious and irritating but um, <laughs> you know but I think there's something valuable there um, the other thing I would say is that this has a directly political effect as well right so there's a lovely Eric Olin Wright lecture I can't quite remember where it is this guy's an analytical Marxist wrote a really good book called Envisioning Real Utopias really worth reading but the thing he points out is that like political bids often make claims on identities right and we all have lots of them um, so when a strike call goes out, which is the, the example he uses, he says, what you're hoping is you're making a claim on someone's identity as a worker in this place. But there are plenty of other things going on as well. Like this person might be a Catholic and so might his boss be. So what you want is, is for, for the identity as a worker to be, or, you know, there are others as well as a, as a heterosexual, for instance, or as, as a Briton, um, you know, and let's say you're in a workplace with lots of migrant workers and you're a Briton, what you don't want is for the, the identity as a Briton go, well, why will I go out on strike with these workers who are, who are paid less well than me? Um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
what you want is the salience, the political salience of the identity as a worker to come to the fore. And often the left is kind of quite reluctant to talk about class identity um, as being in the same kind of continuum of identities as race. Um, but this is something that I've been thinking about a lot, which is, of course, class is an identity. What do you think class consciousness is? Like, culture is the place where we all live. Like, culture is like you know, the, the fluid we're all swimming through and like breathing in as we like encounter one another and encounter our conditions. And the cultural machinery which produced class consciousness has been smashed to bits. Now, it's not the same right. as the cultural class machinery. Class consciousness produces an idea. I mean, class, I would say, is a kind of contradiction that arises in the process of exploitation. Mm. Um, and, and consciousness, class consciousness and identity arises from that. So you were saying? I mean, I think, I think class obviously is an identity. I think, but there's a key part of identity politics or modern identity politics where what you're looking for is the most marginalised. You're mm. looking for the most marginalised to listen to that person. And I don't think that was the traditional identity. Politics and it's funny because Gertrude Spivak is like, can the subaltern speak? No. <laughs> I, that's, I haven't read Spivak. I have to say, it's but a I really mean, long essay, but the answer is no. <laughs> but that's, I, I think that's. Like on an organizational level, that's the key. It's not sort of like that the modern left is saying identity matters. It's modern left saying you have to find the most marginalized and no one but them really has much of a right to speak. So even the striking worker is still fairly privileged compared to the most marginalized person someone can imagine. And that's, you know, a limited means of organization. I kind of wanted to ask you a question, though, because in a way, like lots of your critiques of identity politics there are, you know, have a lot of crossover with the right mm. and sort of right wing critiques of identity politics. And I suppose my position when it comes to all those, you know, those letters which bring together, you know, big figures from the left and the right. So I'm thinking of the J.K. Rowling, mm. Glenn Greenwald, Noam Chomsky one, um, where their, you know, their critiques of identity politics somewhat similar to, to yours that you've mm. just articulated there. And I suppose my response to that has always been, yes, I recognize this critique of identity politics, but I think people who think this is the biggest threat facing the world right mm. now, probably there's something going wrong there. Oh, yeah. And so for me is the question is, are these problems with identity politics something which disarm the left and are therefore troublesome? Or are they genuinely threatening and threaten to take us backwards as a society? So, I mean, what do you think about I that? Mean, so for me, my problem is that it disarms the left because I don't see a society where um, racism has stopped affecting people's lives. I think that racism has changed an awful lot. So some of the interpersonal dimensions have, I think, um, declined to some extent. I mean, like, you know... It, the only place where I'm certain to be called packy in the street is Cornwall and that's fine I just won't go there but that doesn't mean that um conditions for Pakistani and Bangladeshi people in terms of housing discrimination or discrimination in the employment market or what it means to um you know encounter uh border infrastructure has gotten any better it doesn't mean that policing's got any better or healthcare outcomes or whatever else it is but our our ability to go okay so strategically what is our response to these things has been totally hamstrung i would say that we don't even think strategically about it we just go well all of us are kind of appointed social policemen we have to do the work in our own community which basically just means like granny stop saying the slurs and stop <laughs> saying them right now but that doesn't you know what what does that change it changes some things for the better yes but society is moving in a direction where i think those things are, are largely abating and that's a good thing but these really big structural issues are, are remain untouched and i don't think we, we've thought about it in terms of what kind of movement with with which priorities is necessary to take them down and so this is for me the difference between my critiques of, of 
you know, these um, these issues with identity politics and, you know, the kind of, you know, left and liberals and the right all coming together to hate on transgender people. Is that actually what I want is like m much better conditions for trans people. Like I always play a game called who would I swap places with, right? And this is also what people hate with the identity Olympics things. I can recognize that things are worse for other people. Would I swap places with a trans woman in this society? Fuck no, right? My life would get worse. You know, I, it, it doesn't mean that every trans woman has it worse than me, but generally if I had to do like a kind of rulesy and original position, pick a trans person, no, my life would get a lot more difficult. What I want is for there to be a strategic movement which can choose its opponents wisely which can select the best tactics which can move forward with an understanding that we're always more powerful in numbers and anything that tries to split us down into individuals is just going to fuck us um, that's what I want that's the thing I want what I would say is what we're talking about here is as like I said I think is the fragmentation of like a lot of left organizing. And this year we have seen sort of a return in some spaces such as Mink Lynch really articulating that the, the subject of the worker and how the worker encompasses things like anti-racism, et cetera. If you go from that position, that class consciousness or worker consciousness as we might call it more accurately, I guess in the in 21st century now. Um, but I think the, the sort of reductionist identity politics and that siloing off of those categories is a, is a powerlessness response. And mm. that's why we see it particularly in, online because it's an overcorrection to the lack of um, power that we have outside. And something I've noticed is, you know, online, it, it doesn't reflect the outside spaces, but people really treat you if you're a person of color as when you're saying something they agree with, like a magic person. They're like, oh, oh God, yeah. you magic, you magic, um, you magic guru or whatever. And then when they're saying something that they don't like, you're like, you light skin, you white adjacent person. But it's it's a real, as I've seen it in the past, it's it's that thing of like that overcorrection because, um, well, not even overcorrection, that's the wrong word. It's a, it's a response to attempt to write the, I guess, the systemic racism of the external world that very much exists um, online, but the only thing you have online is the aesthetic. You only have sort of like the rhetoric. You don't have any of that real power that you would outside. You can't like make people's wages go up, et cetera. So you reduce your identity. How can I boost? How can I platform? How can I amplify? Um, but yeah, I think this year it's bring positive thoughts back. We have seen some slight return of an articulation of that kind of worker consciousness and how that will underpin everything. Also a really good book on this um, and the history is Race to the Bottom by Ilyas Nagdi and Asma mm. Shafi. And I think again, we're talking about younger generations who are coming up into organising too and haven't really got the history and have grown up on that lower quality due to the literary mm. um, decline that we were talking about earlier, lower quality content of online. And a lot of this would be solved by reading. <laughs> um, so now to turn to someone who only listens to podcasts, Michael, what is the thing that you <laughs> have been wanting to talk about? Listens and makes podcasts. Listens and makes podcasts. Well, I was going to defend podcasts as sort of like the part of literary culture that maybe we still have. Because I do think like people are, people listen to lots of podcasts and podcasts can be really like not, I mean, I mean, obviously I'm not snob, but like they can be very expansive. They're not just tittle-tattle. I mean, they can be tittle-tattle. I mean, I think one reason why the Jordan Petersons of the world have actually got reasonably big is because it's, it's a form of discussion which is quite suited to the podcast, a long-form discussion where you don't actually need any outside information because it's all based on interpretations of your personal experience. So it's, it, it's suited to that form. But anyway, I'll, my position, my thing that was frustrating me this year, preoccupying me this year, was uh, a world away from what we've been talking about, actually, because it's just very purely material. Landlords, 
Um, they have been a long-term bane of my life. I always find it very frustrating that I have to pay other people's mortgages. Also, this year, it happens to have got way worse than it's ever been. I got a rent increase of 15% in the summer. I think average rent increases, I was actually lucky. Average rent increases are now about 22%, which is insane. And people now have to pay to view properties in the rental market, which is completely bizarre. Um, but I think this is interesting in a number of ways because I do feel when it comes to housing and renting, if there ever was a social contract, I think now it has broken. And what's interesting is you're now seeing this on both the left. Well, I suppose you're just seeing the left being a bit more confident than they would have been beforehand. But you're seeing it on the right, which is the new novel, interesting thing. And there is this division on the right, within the right, between NIMBYs and YIMBYs. And the NIMBYs are people who we've already got our foot on the ladder. We want to protect it. We don't have much interest in building a bunch of new homes in our neighborhoods. Then you've got the YIMBYs who are saying, no, what we need to do is we need to deregulate markets. We need to allow the, the market to do its thing. And we want enough homes to be built that we can become homeowners. Now, my sort of cynical interpretation of this is that the, the YIMBYs, what they essentially want is they want to be within the 70% who get a good deal and they're going to happily kick away the ladder for the 30% who will be left out if we take that course of action. But nonetheless, it's an interesting sort of division on their side of sort of the political spectrum, which I think is going to, you know, I mean, it is blowing up, really. It's a big divide on the Tory party when it comes to rebellions. The only defeats that Rishi Sunak has sort of had at the moment are over housing because of this sort of yimby, nimby dichotomy. Also, you can bring in um, onshore wind into that. So I do think we're, we're potentially at a bit of a critical juncture when it comes to housing. Something's going to have to shift because everyone recognizes it's broken. And the question is, do we shift to a model whereby, again, 70% of people can own their home, which unfortunately the Labour Party have decided they're committed to, or do we move to a system whereby we say, actually, renting is going to have to become tolerable um, in this country? I mean, I think this links quite nicely to the thing we were just talking about, which is um, worker consciousness, class consciousness. And one thing that, like, you know, I can talk to people who don't have a great deal of class consciousness about their position as a worker, but their position as a tenant, whoo boy, yes they do. Um, Aaron? Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting year for me too because I have a mortgage with my wife. Don't flex on us. No, but hold on, <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Position. I know, Hold I know, on, I know. hold on. So at the beginning of the year, because we changed mortgage, we just remortgaged, so there's a few points I want to make about that. But at the beginning of the year, our mortgage was 1250 a month for a three-bedroom house, quite a, you know, it's a terraced house, but it's quite much larger than what we'd live in London. Now £2,000. It's gone up £750 just because, of, and, that, and that's fine because we're remortgaging, so that's just, we, we were put onto a variable rate temporarily, but this month we're paying £2,000 for our mortgage. I still prefer that to renting. That's the point, because ultimately that's paying down an asset which we're going to, we're going to own. So even when that comes through, you know what? I still prefer that to renting and paying £1,100, which we did for a one-bed in Crystal Palace. Mm -hmm because that's all going to somebody else. And that's a really important point mm. to nail down. People say, interest rates are going up. Well, you know, my house is costing more than it did before. It's a completely different relationship compared to renters. And even the people that cry about negative equity, yeah, negative equity is not good. But if you're in there for one, two years, it's still qualitatively better than renting. Like the situation is completely different. I mean, I wrote a piece a couple of years ago about how housing and getting in the property ladder mm purely because of how bad renting is. I, I think if we had a, 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 you know, if we had social housing, if we had secure tenancies, I wouldn't say those kinds of things. Completely transformed my mental health, right? Mm. And I, I, think this is the, I think this is the single biggest issue for people in this country under 
55, 50. And that's not to say that there are people over 50 who, who don't rent. They do. And by the way, they're a time bomb when it comes to pensions because people's elderly care is going to be based upon owning assets. And if you don't, you're screwed in two ways. A, you can't pay for care because you don't have the asset. B, you're going to have to continue paying rent. So, and that's a major problem. But I think for people under 55, it's crazy. And finally, one other thing that really made me grateful was we have our home, not that big, three bedrooms. Either side of us are two HMOs, six and seven bedrooms. And I think this for me is one of the interesting contradictions within the whole Yimbyism thing. So for instance, I'm hugely anti-HMO. And I'm sure there's, there are some good houses. Well, where are people going to live though? Hold on, yeah, hold on. How's the multiple occupancy? Well, hold on. Well, my point would be those houses should be turned into like apartments, flats, which a couple can live in, or a house share where it's social. What they're being turned into instead is six atomized units where people can't talk to one another. They live by themselves. And I actually think that's quite a miserable existence. So like, I, I, there's an interesting contradiction there between saying, I, I absolutely, if that house was knocked down and turned into a skyscraper, well, apart from the parking issues that would create, <laughs> I have less of an issue with that than turning it into All HMO. All parking issues. What is that? biggest dad energy in where you live then. So H HMOs, houses of multiple occupancy, are basically, you get a house and you turn each, they're bed sits. Was, but so Some le HMOs legally are, a HMO does it's also a house include share, just a house share. But yeah. you're talking about a particular kind of HMO, yeah. which is well, you convert a house into precisely. rents out each room yeah, individually there's to an individual and you have a lock on the bedroom door. So yeah. one of the things that my mum told me, so she works in child protection, she works in London, is that since the financial crisis where you have more and more families with children living in HMOs, essentially house shares, she's seen a corresponding increase in child sexual abuse wow. because you've got shared kitchen and bathroom space. You've often got the adults in the family having to work irregular hours, multiple jobs. And so what that means for children being at risk within the home has been phenomenal. And, you know, I'm not someone who goes, the nuclear family is the safest thing in the world. Like, like I don't believe that. But I think that where you take control away from the home space and you don't allow people um a sense of regulating who is coming into that home space and who uh you know who, who's kept out of it there is a safeguarding issue there and it's something which is being reflected in, in what social workers are encountering um there was just something i was going to add to that which is that that, that again this this seems to me to because i'm listening to the way in which like actually all of you are talking about it this again is an issue that's not purely economic i mean you, you're talking about security you're talking about this kind of value you know the, this kind of sense of rootedness and long-term um uh uh yeah security being the key word um i guess the thing that i'm wondering and maybe this is a question that 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 michael can answer is like so on the one hand, I see I see what the right is doing here. And one of the things that's clear from the kind of Yimbyist part of the right is that they're recognizing that in order to have any kind of um, social constituency at all under the age of 50, they have to start doing something about this, um, which is, you know, is an existential issue. Michael Gove says it's an existential issue for the Conservative Party. I suppose, you know, the question for me about this is, like this is this is part and a key part and a really fundamental part of what makes living in Britain so crummy, right? Um, and it's really fundamental, and it goes to like lots of things. It, it points out that Britain, you know, actually not a very wealthy country. It's kind of like a low wage country with rich people. Um, its public realm is starved. In this case, kind of social housing. Um, in, but above all, 
it's a, a society that's dominated by the rentier. Um, the way to make money in Britain, thus to be secure, is to own something and charge someone else to use it. Um, and, and so I wonder whether you see, Michael, and so, so the way I've seen this is as I've recently been thinking about the way this operates in the care system, which is that you have, at almost every level, public funds leak out of the system and they don't come back to the exchequer, or they often go offshore or they get hidden or they go through kind of web of companies where they don't get taxed properly, right? This happens in almost every realm of kind of public life. And so I guess the question I'm, I'm asking when it comes to housing for you is like, you know, is it is it that housing is a particularly acute example of a wider thing or is it a distinct phenomenon um, on its own which should be thought about separately? Uh, well, I think it's the biggest example of it and it's the one that's sort of most politically salient. I mean, they, they often say about like income tax. I think in America it's more politicised because you pay it at the end, right? You you know, you know do your tax return, whereas here, P-A-Y-E, you don't really notice your income yeah, tax so much. I have so to much. do my tax return. Yeah, whereas, I do my tax return. But rent, rent is literally like... 800 pound that goes out of my bank account at the same day each month like you it could not be more visible to me right and it could be not be more significant so I, I think in terms of rentierism in housing versus other sectors yeah there's obviously a lot of crossover but it's just a, a bigger more obvious deal when it comes to housing i think in terms of hmos i mean i agree this is not an ideal way for anyone to be living it's potentially getting back to front to say get rid of those before you've obviously there's no point in slum clearance if you don't build the replacements, right? So, so it's so the reason people are living in HMOs at the moment is because there isn't enough. No, no. The reason why they're living so. in them is because that makes it makes people money. That's why they're living no, in but, them. No, but the reason why HMOs are being created is because they're a revenue generator for people. They're not. They're not. Oh, we're going to meet demand. It's not about meeting demand. It's about how do you maximize. But it does. How do you maximize the revenues from that building? It's not to rent it out as a house or turn it into two flats. It's to turn it into seven discrete units. It's, so I, I don't yeah, buy that argument. In, in some places, in in London, obviously HMOs are more likely to be house shares. I think. But, but, so either way, separate, but either way, the issue is, I'm referring to you, you as a landlord yeah. are converting it to that because you can maximize your revenue. You can maximize your revenue because you maximize the number of people who live in that property, right? So unless you build more homes, unless there is alternatives for people, there's no point in getting rid of the HMO you're, you're, because then you'll just have homeless getting, We're not getting rid of HMOs. Houses are being turned into HMOs. But I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel you're, both, you're, you're, you're both talking about the same thing from, from different angles. So the housing stock that exists is being bought up by people who can then leverage their position within the market to extract more maximum yeah. possible revenue. And because if you're someone who is, is locked out of asset ownership, you're not able to leverage your position in the market the same way, you have to pay whatever just for whatever is available because that's your only option. And that will be presented as the solution to the housing crisis. That's my point. So they will turn house after house after house into these kinds of units and say, look, we've created so much capacity now for people to rent in. No, not have... in a house, a permitted development of office blocks. Yeah, we exactly. talked about back in 2012. is astonishing. Which is why I think it's really, really dangerous because that is that is the solution on offer from status quo politics. They're also doing this with university accommodation by building surplus university accommodation that there's not enough people to fill it and then saying, oh, no, we can't fill it. So, yeah. And because university accommodation is subject to less planning regulation and less standards than other accommodation is, then they build surplus and then they say, oh, we can't fill it. So they fill it with all normal rented tenants and people also buy shares in that and become landlords by investing in that university accommodation. So you're seeing places like Liverpool, particularly, I think Cardiff as well, really brought up by this low quality, terrible accommodation that is what you're describing, which mm. is the HMO bedsits essentially. Um, and you're also seeing London's, but London's rental crisis. And I think 
think the rental crisis needs to be addressed immediately because that crisis is spreading to other cities. You're getting places like Manchester, you know, Didsbury, rooms in houses going for 650 in like shared houses where someone else lives. And that is not normal for those spaces. Mm -hmm. London's rents have always been high and now they're so disproportionately high. You're seeing that leak out everywhere else. And it's just going to get worse and worse. I know we all know this. I'm just saying, reiterating the hopelessness. Some of it could be dealt with immediately. Yeah. charge for viewings. You can lay legislation like that to ban it if you wanted to. You could. It's, it's not going to make that much difference. I mean, one thing that um, I kind of learned through making this podcast I'm doing is that I think we potentially overstate the power of like landlords in the political system. Because George Osborne actually introduced a bunch of reforms which are quite bad for landlords. Um, and it hasn't actually worked out that well for renters so far. So what they what used to be the case is that when you rented out a property, you only get taxed on the profit. So you get to say, this is my revenue, this is the rent. I'll take away the mortgage and then I'll get the 40% income tax on the difference. Now you get the 40% income tax on the whole thing. Now, obviously, I have absolutely zero sympathy for landlords whatsoever. But that policy was introduced by George Osborne because he thought it would help aspiring homeowners. One outcome, because they didn't build any social housing, they didn't build an alternative, is that now it's actually harder to rent a property as a private renter than it otherwise would have been. So I do think if we go from this angle of this is a situation we don't like, this is a sort of exploitative situation we don't like, let's get rid of that without looking at what are going to be the unintended consequences and how we're dealing with those, then we're going to be in a difficult place. So I'd say if you ban HMOs without first having first HMOs. built the alternative. I think that's why you misunderstood each other. I think he was saying that you you were saying that ban HMOs immediately and you were saying... There was a miscommunication yeah, when you were talking. I think you could, for instance, we, we, you could build a social coalition around good housing for people. And mm. what you have at the same time is you have in high-density neighbourhoods massive drain on resources because what was previously a, a road that would have had 2,000 people living on it suddenly has four or 5,000 people living on it. And nobody wants that from the homeowners, the renters, the people living in the bedsits. And the people benefiting from it are landlords. And, and I'll push back a bit on this because <clears throat> I suppose, oh, I mean the cliche Marxist because I'm talking about the, the big bad la landlord and actually the problem is supply and we need to, you know, th there's bigger macro levels to this. All true, but the reality is a very small subsection of society at present benefits from what's going on. And it, it's not even 10%. You know, it's not one of those 40, 60, 70, 30. It's mm. a tiny group of people. Landlords shouldn't exist. We yeah. all agree with that. Mm, yeah. and, I, and, I, and I think, again, you know, so if you're looking at like, it's like big tech. It's, it should be so easy to build a social coalition in opposition to the interests of these people. But you've got to make sure the social coalition is also in favour of a Short consequence term. which is actually yeah. going to benefit people because if your coalition is you can you can organize it potentially around a hatred of landlords and i think actually your argument about hmos is very interesting because that could be how you build a coalition between people who want social housing and nimbys mm. you say actually building more social housing yeah. is the way that you don't have these hmos on your street that probably yeah. no one likes so as a as a form of coali coalition building potentially but i'd say keep your eyes on the prize which is everyone being housed in a mm. sort of decent non-exploitative way. You're also talking about sequencing, aren't you? You're saying that yeah. you need to have yeah. the building in place first before we such... take the easy legislative step. Yeah. But I think the thing that you were asking Michael, which is, is the landlord problem um, part of a systemic problem of rentierism? Well, somebody has written a chapter of a book <laughs> called... <laughs> Uh, and, and, and it's a chapter which I call Planet Landlord, and it's a... <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> 
face. He's no longer contagious. <laughs> you made me laugh. It gives me like the smallest little giggle. Gives me a coughing fit. Oh you are like <coughs> bullshit. Um, <laughs> never gonna sell. Um, but but the reason why I call it Planet Landlord is a way of going from this thing which I think we all experience, or many of us experience, and many of us, if, you know, even if you're lucky enough to be a homeowner, you you know you you have friends who aren't, you know particularly for our generation you're highly unlikely to own your own home outright there will be a degree of like um empathetic connection with with being a tenant is that actually taking that and applying it to the entirety of the economy Mm. because think about how many things you actually own like you actually actually own so if, if 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 you're michael you're a renter you don't own your home but even you know you and your partner right i imagine you haven't paid off the majority of the mortgage no, I, own. Um, I own a big liability yeah. right you, <laughs> own, I live in. you own a big liability um okay like uh, my phone i'm paying off the handset um cars right so many people are buying flash cars and finance plans because mm. i'm like okay well how are you affording this like shiny new suv in tottenham okay you're, you're you're in debt um okay what about like klarna and clear pay right the clothes which are in your cupboard or like the takeaways that are in your belly if they've been like bought on this form of debt how much do you really own what would happen to you if all of your debts were called in tomorrow would you you know that includes your student loan as well as like you know your your buy now pay later stuff credit card debt mortgage whatever what would happen if it was all called in tomorrow would you have enough assets that you could sell that you could keep a roof over your head food on your table and clothes on your back probably not so how many of us are really tenants which is like tenants you know like like you know tenant farmers almost there are these huge feudal landlords who who own all the stuff i think that that is the story of class that we need to be telling and that's why i'm so excited by your podcast i do think there's one element missing from this conversation which we've talked about landlords a lot and we haven't talked about the middleman which is the estate agents who tend to be whispering in the ear and pushing up those prices the iago the yeah exactly <laughs> the iago of the of the landlord the rentier system and I, I think immediately we should be focusing on the estate agents if we were to build any sort of social coalition as uh, an intermediary in this process, which makes it 10 times worse. Everyone I know who rents via an estate agent has a much worse time of a situation than those who rent directly mm. from a landlord. And if we're talking about short-term reform, et cetera, I think estate agents are one site and property managers are one site where we really need to be focusing on, especially as it disconnects you from that immediate, and now it's built on a human relationship, right? Unfortunately, we don't have the regulations in place that make it so that you have complete tenant protections, even the ones that we have. But um, when it's built on that personal relationship, the, the intermediary of the estate agent, the property manager, et cetera, removes you that one step further. So it's instantly, well, the landlord says, it's, well, the tenant's being disagreeable. Sorry, they're not going to put the rent, they're not going to agree to a 30% increase while well, they've got to go, just tell them to get out. It's that kind of relationship. And I think any campaign should be focusing on abolishing estate agents. I'm going <laughs> to pause us here. Um, Moya says, hang the estate agents. Uh, Aaron, <laughs> um, what has been on your mind this year? What has been on my mind is that Europe is getting much poorer very, very quickly. Um, the decoupling from Russia in regards to hydrocarbons, and I think probably from China in regards to cheap consumer durables, is going to be a massive hit to a full sense of prosperity that we've really clung on to, particularly since 2007, but I think you know it goes all the way back you know, to 1989. Um, you see this in, for instance, German car manufacturers no longer being as competitive because, of course, the energy they're using has gone up in price. All of a sudden, Japanese or U- US automotive manufacturers are more competitive. You see it with regards to our own energy bills. What does Europe have 
doesn't really have natural resources. Doesn't certainly doesn't have hydrocarbons. Pastries. Europe has great pastries. It has, it has some good things, no doubt about that. Not as good as <laughs> it doesn't. You know, it has it, the oil and the best pastries. <laughs> they have the best oil. pastries too. It cannot be denied. Yeah. No, I, I think you know. It's. It's. I think it'd be pretty a bit of a tie between West Asia and the Mediterranean. But anyway, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Europe, <laughs> Europe doesn't have doesn't have energy. It doesn't have lots of people. Um, it doesn't have high levels of innovation compared to somewhere like China or the US. You know, PricewaterhouseCooper um, put out a, a report saying that by 2035, about 14 trillion will be added to the global economy by AI. 70% goes to China and the US. You know, and Europe is not really at the races. We're aging demographically, of course. I mean, that can change quickly if you have more progressive immigration policies, but that, that's the present state of play. You have depopulation in much of Central and Eastern Europe. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's an interesting question to ask. On the left, we, we think about revolution. We think about these sudden ruptures. But what if actually the next 20, 30, 40 years of European politics is just gradual decline? Maybe there isn't a far-right party that takes over somewhere. Maybe there isn't a successful Corbyn or Bernie Sanders, you know, in a, in a major European economy. But actually, we're a bit more like Venice from, you know, the 16th to the 19th century, you know, increasingly culturally inferior our military might as a thing of the past. Our politics to the wider world is just less and less relevant. You know, what if the the the, the dynamic entrepôts and 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 places to be in the 21st century are in East and South Asia, and later on, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa? What if we've had our day as a as a civilization? I I, I suppose I, I I'd want to open that up, and I don't mean that in a sort of like you know, white 20th century civilization. I literally mean the people living in Europe today. What if our standard of living broadly doesn't get any better for the next 15, 20 years? What does that mean? Who wants Ooh, to take up the I thread? have so many thoughts on this because, of course, Europe has been through this before. Europe went through the decline and frag fragmentation of the Roman Empire. Mm. He was um, there for that. <laughs> <laughs> he saw it all, James. <laughs> <laughs> Guess the Colosseum yes, there's, a, there's a bust <laughs> curiously like James Butler uh, yes yeah, so time's, time's sole witness um, no no but Europe has been through this before and I think you know I think it's worth having a conversation on that level and say okay well actually lots of the features that and, and so the historiography around the kind of decline of the Roman Empire is, is kind of highly contested um, about why it happened, whether the kind of internal economy, uh, you know, whether it was a question kind of overstretched borders, um, whether it is a question of kind of relying on sort of slave economies and therefore being unable to develop in the ways that you might want. The, the big kind of counterfactual is like, why did Rome never develop the steam engine? All the technology was there, it could have done it. Um, it just never kind of was not interested in that kind of labor-saving technology. Um, this is like often a discredited thing now in scholarship, but it's like it's one of those questions that's worth thinking about. There are other kind of sides of this, which is that like actually from the interior, um, like you know when Rome fell, it fell into these kind of you know increasingly kind of um, smaller and smaller statelets. Um, you know, you know for for instance in Roman Britain, like the messages basically just stopped coming. Um, so like Rome was probably out there somewhere. It's clear that Roman Britons and people who are identified with kind of the Roman project carried on their Romanitas um, and their, their, their commitment to Romanness for a long time. But eventually in somewhere like Bath, you see that like the streets don't get cleaned anymore. And you know, when the building starts falling apart, it doesn't really get repaired. And there are, you know, don't the, feel the really triggered start. about like contemporary London. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and then, then you get the kind of the, the incredible, beautiful, much later Anglo-Saxon poetry where they say, they look at these ruins and say the work of giants crumbled. 
Um, right. And so that that is the period that I suspect probably Europe is entering into over the kind of next two, three hundred years, um, looking at a kind of big, you know, from, from that that scale. Um, the, 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 the questions here, I think, are, are partly to do with climate change. So this is, you know, um, this, you know, this is you know, some people say this is a good thing for Europe. Right. Because, you know. Um, Northern Europe gets a bit more, bit warmer. Um, you can farm Greenland. You can farm Greenland. Um, the question about about energy, yes, absolutely. Um, Europe doesn't have oil resources, but it certainly does have wind um, and wave resources, and certainly geothermal to the north. So the question of whether a kind of concerted European push to really integrate, and that's the the stumbling question here, actually, is whether there's a political project which will allow um, the kind of warlike tribes of Europe to finally integrate. Um, in a second Romanitas um, and, you know, build a grid. Because the thing about renewables here is that you, what you require is kind of massive storage and redistribution, right? It's no good having geothermal energy in Iceland if you're in, you know, Italy. <laughs> um, so so that's, this is a question about climate change here. And what that r gives rise to is this big question um, about the European political project. Um, now, the, the, thing, the, one, the thing that's been on my mind, and I think you will know this as well, is the speech by Josep Borrell, mm. um, Europe is a walled garden, mm. right? And he was castigated for like, this is obviously racist if you consider the rest of the world a jungle and Europe is a walled garden, like, we know what you're doing. Um, but the thing he's also saying is like, he's, he's, you know, he's clearly thinking on that kind of question of a sort of integrated, um, you know, European scale political project and saying like, actually, there are kind of things that Europe does fairly well in terms of its balance, you know, its political balances, like it's, you know, balance between kind of social and uh, entrepreneurial um, impulses. You, know, you can disagree or agree with that, whatever. But it's obvious he's thinking, he's trying to think about the long term there. And, you know, he retracted the speech and it wasn't a very good speech. And it wasn't a very wise speech. It was an interesting speech mm. because it tells you what these people are thinking. That's a vein of thinking that goes back to people like Danny Kern-Bender and, and um, uh, even someone like Giva Hofstadt, um, who, who, who are very interested in this question of kind of European political projects as a whole. Other part of what you're saying, I guess, is about um, global polarity. And I guess like the the thing that was on my mind when listening to you speak is that passage at the end of Origi's The Long 20th Century, where he says like, it might be that no hegemonic, and you don't have to be a world systems theorist to like buy this. This is not book. Origi who played for Liverpool. I don't know who that is. Um, <laughs> I don't know who either of these is. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm ignorant of both Origi. Well, James says we don't have to be a world systems theorist. Default Origi <laughs> was a super sub for Liverpool. Giovanni Origi is a sort of uh, historical sociologist. Yeah. Such range, Aaron. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. you're the missing um, <laughs> And like, but that passage towards the end of the long 20th century where he says, like, look, it might be that, no, you might, you might get this scenario where an, another global hegemon follows the United States, you might get this, this kind of split hegemony where you get a military hegemon and economic hegemon in different places. You might get kind of, you know, just kind of global chaos as mm. these things kind of decline and actually no clear power emerges. And you have a, an increasing kind of deglobalization and fragmentation into kind of regional powers. That to me looks like the most reasonable, most likely outcome um, of the trajectory that we're on at the moment. I mean, I, 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 say this with a really big caveat and the caveat is i don't want to romanticize china it's not a country i would like to live in it's deeply authoritarian and in many ways my sense of what freedom is has been shaped indelibly by growing up here however it feels like a state which does stuff which has the capacity to do stuff okay there needs to be a hospital built we will do it in eight days there needs to be high-speed rail infrastructure we will uh you know 
practically cover one of the largest landmasses in the world, the high-speed rail infrastructure within the course of you know a decade, a decade and a half. And I was speaking to a friend who recently spent um, a lot of time in Shanghai, and he said it feels like living in the future. You go to Shanghai from England and it feels like you are living in the future. Now, again, I don't want to live in an authoritarian state. And me and you have discussed this a few times where I do think there's something inherently emancipatory about democratic participation. Um, but I think about what some, what, what, what the um, blossoming of certain kinds of choice and the restriction of other kinds of choice has done to, to Western societies. We have infinite consumer choice. What we have no choice over is the it, participating in consumerism or an economy which is based on consumerism. Um, I have infinite choices in terms of who I want to be, how I want to style myself, how I want to present myself to the world. But I don't have a choice about living in a society which takes care of people. And So again, it's not about romanticizing China, but I have that sense of real melancholy, actually, when I look at that kind of building project, when I look at that kind of um, uh, state ambition. And I feel this immense sense of loss that we don't have it here. I feel that it comes back to that point that James was making earlier about uh, normativism and how social decay has been wrapped up with this idea that moral decays you were talking about all these different choices we have but we don't actually have much control over the space and whether that normalism will just be on the rise if as aaron says europe is now in a 200 to 300 year decline along with the effects of climate change etc and what that's going to do to people who are organizing i want to sort of build on that because yeah what what is the future for europe mm. uh, britain as well right britain is at the forefront of all the things we're talking about all the failures that you see across europe i think britain is the forefront of it <laughs> number one like in terms of, <laughs> in terms of poor infrastructure stagnating living standards etc cetera, etc cetera, i think it's it's at the forefront of all of it bruce sterling a science fiction author has a great quote you know forecasting is obviously a very difficult business but he thinks there are three t- certainties for the 21st century we can be pretty sure of um urbanization climate change demographic aging so what is the future it's old people in big cities afraid of the sky mm. and and that's how i look at you know that's how i look at europe right and like there is a sense of social mission even in the us i actually think the tension between the various factions in the united states mm. it's not good there might be a civil war there might be secession but it's it's i think there's a kind of creative destructive impulse within us civil society which does allow potentially for it to renew itself, right? Which has happened before, and I think it could happen again. Or you look at China. There's clearly there's clearly something going on in terms of the relocation of power from, from the Atlantic to the Pacific, and not just China, East Asia too, Vietnam, Thailand, and whatnot. And I, I look at that, and I look at the various sort of cultures and civilizations, nation states, that sense of s- sort of purpose, mission, which goes back to the normative questions, right? How that cascades from the level of a society down to individuals, and how it aligns quite powerfully in many instances, right? Um, whether you're an American citizen pledging allegiance to the flag, or uh, you know somebody in South Asia, you know who has a sense of Hindutva or whatever, I'm not suggesting it's necessarily good or bad, but the, 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 I think some social the mission. The B and BJP uh, stands for Bastani. Social ah. mission can be very bad, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, of course it can. But the point is, precisely because of the absence of normative sort of thinking, we we we, we seem incapable of doing that in our society. And when you have this kind of this um, this panoply of crises, demographic aging automation, climate change, inequality. Like, it's it's almost like the default, particularly in Europe, is like, it's frozen. It can't do anything. And I, I so I think as a, as a European or as a Brit, 
and actually like think of myself as an English person, really. So it's, an Englishman. An Englishman. I think it's just got all those strange ambiguities and contradictions of somebody who's sort of mixed race and a collapsing union. I like that. <laughs> um, but, uh, I find that quite alluring. But, you know, what's our sense of social purpose and mission? And I think that is an amazing question for the left. And it's like, it's such fertile ground for progressive socialist politics. Well, that is where we are going to finish because it is slightly less of a bummer than everything we've discussed so far. <laughs> so I just want to say thank you to the Navarra Media family, to Moya, to Aaron, to James and to Michael for joining us for this end of year roundup of our personal and political neuroses. We will be back in the new year with more mid-quality content but there will be more of it um so thank you for joining us and have a great holiday period goodbye support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to navarra media from just one pound a month a regular donation helps us to plan our future and be even more ambitious with our coverage of news politics culture, and the really big ideas that you'll always find on our podcasts. So please consider joining us and become a regular supporter from just £1 a month by heading to navarramedia.com forward slash support.